Moving on. All right. So, uh, if you've been with us uh, longer than a month, you know that we are in the middle of a sermon series uh, on the attributes of God. Uh, we took a break here in the beginning of January to talk about some other uh, things, our rhythms as a church, but we're back in our attributes sermon series. And if you remember, uh, last week and then the week before we took that break, we were talking about these w- really weird church words, omni, the omnis, right? So we started with uh, omnipresence, and then last week we talked about God's omniscience. Uh, and so this week we're going to finish up that kind of uh, three-part look at God's omnis by looking at God's omnipresence. Or, or, sorry, omnipresence was a month ago. Omnipotence. We are talking about God's omnipotence today. So, um, again, I, this is kind of a reminder for us, but w- when we're talking about uh, the attributes of God, they kind of split into two categories. The communicable and the incommunicable, right? So there's um, ten incommunicable attributes of God. There are ways that God is not like us. Ways in which he is completely separate from us, completely different from us. And then there's a category of his attributes that are called the communicable attributes, which are ways that that we reflect him, ways in which we were created in his image. Uh, Attributes of God that we actually see in the people and in the world around us. And so we are in the middle, well actually we're in the, not in the middle, next week we'll actually end uh, the incommunicable attributes and we'll move into the communicable attributes. Those are weird ways of describing it, but I think they're fairly accurate. But in this category that we're in right now, the incommunicable attributes of God, the ways in which He is not like us, uh, it's important for us to understand that as we talk about these things and as we go through scriptures that pertain to these things, um, and as we attempt to try to understand these things, we have to understand that in that searching, in that learning, uh, our capacity as humans to, to comprehend things that we have no category for is extremely limited. Right? So I have an extremely limited capacity to understand uh, God being uh, omnipotent which translated into English means all-powerful. I have an extremely, extremely limited capacity to understand a being that is all-powerful. And so as we attempt to learn about these things, we have to understand that our understanding of them will always be limited and requires a great deal of faith and a great deal of trust. That's why we're saying about trusting God so much this morning. Because our hearts need to be tuned into uh, the fact that God is not like us. And for us to learn about God, uh, we have to come with him, to Him with the right posture. So, with that said, God's omnipotence. God is all-powerful, right? So, uh, before we talk about the fact that God is all-powerful, we have to talk about the idea of power. Because um, it's different for some of us. Right uh, in her book, uh, uh, none like him. Jen Wilkins says that their uh, power is described in different ways. Sports Illustrated uh, would describe it as physical strength. Uh, Glamour magazine would describe it as beauty. Forbes magazine would describe it as wealth. People magazine would describe it as charisma. Right, there are ways in which we as humans uh, gain power, and these are ways in which we. Th- these are categories that we typically will think about power, right? If, if 
most of us have, if we have a really athletic background, we tend to think of physical strength as power. If we uh, uh, come from a rich background, we tend to think not, and these are not things that we actively think, right? These are ways in which we've been shaped, and so this is, these are areas in which our heart and mind automatically go to. Does that make sense? So nobody out here is sitting out here, I don't think, going, mm, yeah, physical strength, yeah, that's the real source of power, right? It's just ways that we're shaped by our upbringing and by our life, ways that we feel and ways that we think because we're, we're bent that way. Does that make sense? So I don't think any of us would go, yep, beauty, that's the one, right? But some of us have been shaped in such a way that we tend to use beauty in order to gain influence others, over others. So these categories are the ways in which we are shaped and categories in which we think about power. But it's interesting that none of these describe Jesus. None of these describe Jesus. In fact, you might say that these four categories of power are the antithesis to who Jesus was and who he is. And so as we talk about this idea of power, it's it's very important that we understand what power is and what it is not. When we're talking about God being all-powerful, we're not talking about that he is the most physically strong. We're not talking about the fact that he is the most beautiful, that he owns everything, and that he is the most charismatic, even though he is all all of those things. As Jesus, uh, Jen Wilkin just says it this way in her book, None Like Him. She says, in fact, he was largely rejected by the Jews because of his refusal to use power in the way they had expected or hoped. Rather, knowing that all power belonged to the Father, he walked humbly among us. There's a way in which power is yielded that is extremely important. And so as we talk about um, this idea of God being omnipotent, God being all-powerful, we have to understand that power and the, and the way it's yielded are incredibly uh, inseparable. In the world that we live in, power is a way of gaining something for myself. Does that make sense? So even though God is the most beautiful, the most wealthy, the most charismatic, and the most physically strong, the way we see that power carried out in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is not for his own personal gain. It's always used for the gain and for the benefit of others. We have to understand when we talk about the word power and we talk about and we we attribute it all power to God, we have to understand the way he yields that power. It's always for the benefit of others. Now, Jen Wilkin also says if knowledge is powerful, how powerful is the one who holds all knowledge? So we like last week we talked about God's omniscience, right? He is uh, he, he knows everything. He has all knowledge. So if we're talking about God's omnipotence, he is all-powerful. So if knowledge is powerful, how powerful is the one who holds all knowledge? Next week, we're going to close up this list of attributes by talking about God's sovereignty, which for me is kind of a way of packaging God's uh, omnipresence, 
uh, the fact that he is present everywhere uh, at all times, God's omniscience, that he is all-knowing, and God's omnipotence, that he is all-powerful. You take all three of those things and kind of mash them up into one, you have God's sovereignty. But we're going to get to that next week, right? We're going to get to be, there's, there's a whole, yeah, yeah. The most simple way that we can think about God's omnipotence is simply to say he is able. He is able. There is nothing that he is not able to do. Uh, this doctrine is assumed everywhere in the Bible. I mean, we could literally uh, post hundreds of verses on the screen that would uh, imply God's omnipotence, if not state it explicitly. You're not going to find that specific word in the Bible unless you're reading the King James. Then I think you might find it in there. Um, but you're not going to find the word omnipotence in the Bible. You're going to find the term almighty again and again and again and again. It's all over the place. We're just going to look at a few. In Jeremiah 32, verse 17, it says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Luke chapter 1, verse 37 says, For nothing is impossible with God. He is able. I know, uh, Job 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 119, 91, your laws endure to this day for all things serve you. In Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. This is just a short sampling of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses that uh, talk about God's omnipotence. God possessing all power. John Stott, in his uh, uh, commentary on the book of Ephesians, in talking about uh, Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, uh, that, that ver- those verses say, Now to him who is able to, immeasur- to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine... Uh, I always love that, right? Not all that we ask, but all that we ask or imagine. And that's a lot. I can imagine a lot, right? I mean, my imagination can go wild. I can think of a lot in terms of things that I would want. But God's able to do immeasurably more than that? According to his power that is at work within us. Now it got really weird, right? Not only is that power to do like able to do immeasurably more than anything that I can not only ask, but more than I can also imagine, but it's according to the power that's at work in us. To him be the the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So John Stott took that passage and here's what he did with it. Number one, he is able, for he is the true and living God. Number two, he is able to do, for he is neither inactive, idle, nor dead. Number three, he is able to do what we ask, for he hears and answers prayer. He's just taking this passage and he's breaking it up. What is God, what exactly, according to these two verses, is God able to do? Number four, he is able to do what we ask and what we imagine, for he reads our thoughts, and sometimes we imagine things for which we do not dare ask, but he is able to do those things anyways. Number five, he is able to do all that we ask or imagine, for he knows it all and can perform it all. Number six, he is able to do more than all we ask or imagine because his expectations are higher than ours. 
And number seven, he is able to do immeasurably more, immeasurably more than we ask or imagine because his power is unlimited. In Genesis 17, God speaks to Abraham, right? There's that, they have that conversation where God uh, promise, makes these promises to Abraham about his family and how it's going to grow and be giant. And Abraham's like, man, I'm old and I don't have any kids. In fact, uh, he was 99, right, at the time. And, and Romans chapter 4 actually describes Abraham. I've loved this. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 4 describes Abraham as good as dead, right? He's as good as dead, right? I mean, Paul's trying to make a point about what? What's Paul trying to make a point about? That somebody that's as good as dead, God could bring new life from. And so it's a, I mean, it's a kind of a comical way to describe someone. If somebody said that about me, I'd probably be a little bit offended. Um, But this is, you know, let's be honest. Abraham had been dead a long time. I don't think he was offended by what Paul said. But. So Abraham has these doubts, right? I'm really old. My childbearing years are long gone. And God simply reassures him by calling himself a name. He refers Abraham by calling himself El Shaddai, which means Almighty God. In that moment, he tells Abraham, stop looking at yourself. Stop seeing what you can't do and fix your eyes on me because there is nothing that I am unable to do. There is nothing that I am unable to do. Two questions that we struggle with as humans as it pertains to God, I think more than any other. Is he able? That was weird. Is he able? And is he willing? Right? I'm not going to wade into these waters right now. We're going to wade into these waters. Uh, we're going to get over our heads next week in these waters. Okay? But the question, like, here's how it's usually formed. If, uh, it's not a question, it's a statement. If God is all-powerful, that means he can stop evil. If God is good, then he is willing to stop evil. But because evil exists, he can't be both. We're going to get into that next week. But that's, I mean, that's the question, right? That's the question that we wrestle with. Is God able and is he willing? Is he able and is he willing? We all struggle with one of those two things. And most of us tend to struggle with the first. We say, yes, I believe God can, I believe God can, but in the back of our mind, we kind of go, eh. Which then takes us to the second question. If I believe that he can, and is, then is he willing? We all struggle with these two questions. So what are the implications? If God is all-powerful, If God really does possess all power, what are the implications for us? What should the implications for us be in our lives? Because again, our understanding of this idea is limited, right? 
because I don't possess all power. I don't even possess a little bit of power. Like next to none. Right? If we think about power as influence other, over other people, it's extremely limited. It's extremely limited. And if I'm honest, most of the time when I'm gaining influence other, over other people, it's for my selfish desires and not to give life to others. I am not wielding power in the way that God would wield it. And so I'm able to gain more power using it this way, at least I feel that way, but my power is extremely limited, so, so is yours. So the first implication of this is that, um, that we have to understand is that his purposes will not be thwarted. They won't be. If I really believe that idea, like how is it going to carry itself out in my life? At the end, at the end of the book of Job, right? Go, Job goes through all of this, lose, loses every possession, his entire family, and is completely devastated physically. And he goes through this entire conversation, all of this turmoil, and at the end of the book, what does he have? He has his faith in God, right? And to my knowledge, like it, we are not given any indication in the book of Job that he has ever given a picture or a window into the conversation that took place between God and Satan at the beginning of the book. Remember that? At the beginning of the book, we have this conversation between God and Satan where, uh, where Satan goes, hey, Job only loves you because you've given, you've given him all this stuff. You let me take it away and he'll curse you to your face. And so then God says, okay, here you go. Here's how you can affect him. And here's how you can't affect him. Job's not given a window into the, that information. We are, but Job's not. And even at the end of the book, he never... We're never given any indication that he knows what happened. Here's what he is given. In Job 38, the, the, the verse that David read to us, that's God speaking to Job, to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Right? This is God's response to Job's questioning of him. Why are you doing these things? What did I do to deserve this? And God's response to Job is simply to say, you don't know what you're talking about. You can't know what you're talking about. So at the end of the book of Job, we have a man who is utterly broken. Utterly devastated. On his knees before the creator of the universe saying, I trust you. I trust you. Nothing can stop God's plans. Not evil men, not natural catastrophe, not luck, not fate, not human error. That's encouraging, right? The fate of God's plans does not rest on you. The fate of another person's salvation, including your children's, does not rest on you. It does not rest ultimately on you. Not even Satan can hinder God's plan. In fact, Martin Luther is famous for saying that the devil is God's devil because he serves God's purposes. 
The second implication is that what God starts, he always finishes. Everything that we undertake is unfinished. Everything. Right? Necessarily. That's the nature of the world that we live in. You paint a house, how many, like, I mean, depending on the, how much money you spent on the paint, right? You're going to be painting it again in 10 years. Everything is unfinished. I'm remodeling my house right now. I am painfully aware of that fact. Everything is unfinished. There's one person in the history of the universe that has proclaimed the words, it is finished, to full effect. His name is Jesus. And he was talking about your salvation, my salvation. What he starts, he finishes. Our eternal security rests on this truth. The fact that we are held in the hands of God, that our salvation is held in the hands of God, depends on this truth. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To, inherit, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who, by what? By God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. God's power, not my power. Not my strength. God's power. Jude 24, and the doxology says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Who's able? He is able. He is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless. Blameless. He is able to present you blameless. You're not able. I'm not able. He is able. And my favorite, Philippians 1 6, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Not can, not might, will. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. He has the power to do that. He has promised to do that, and nothing can change it. That is his plan, and he finishes what he starts. Nothing can change that. No matter what we see around us, nothing can change that. Have you ever uh, been in an area and then, have you, let's look at it this way. Uh, you've lived, most of us live in this immediate area, right? And most of us have been on airplanes. Have you ever uh, flown over the Willamette Valley and tried to find your street and your house and your town? right? Looks slightly different, doesn't it? Like, oh, that hill, like, I used to think that hill was big. When I see it from 30,000 feet, it's just, I mean, it's barely noticeable. That's, that's a kind of a simple way of describing some of this. Everything that we see happening around us, we see at ground level. We do not possess the capability of seeing things from 30,000 feet as it pertains to these ideas. 
we do not possess the capability of seeing the problem of evil from God's point of view. We have been given a, given a limited idea in His Word, right? And in His Spirit as He reveals Himself to us. But it's extremely limited. So the things that we can't understand, we have to trust what He has revealed to us, that it is true. That His plans will be accomplished. He does what He says He will do. And nothing can stop Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is an amazing passage. Starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? It's the power of God. The word of the cross is folly. It's insanity. It's crazy talk, right? The idea that God would give up his power and die on a cross. Right? When we talk about the idea that Jesus um, didn't do what the Jews expected him to do because they had a framework of power and influence in their minds that he didn't ascribe to, so he must not be the Messiah. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the, discerning, the, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is what? The power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human might, being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. To the world, the cross was a terrible tragedy, tragedy and a waste, or a lie, right? We tend to think sometimes about uh, Jesus being uh, crowned as king when he returns, right? The triumphal, uh, ultimate triumphal entry when Christ comes back and he is crowned as king. You know when Christ got crowned as king? On the cross. That was his coronation. See, our, our view of what it means to wield power is so backwards. 
So when we think of God being all-powerful, the way we tend to think of it is backwards. Yes, God is the strongest, the most beautiful. He does own everything, right? I mean, everything. And he does have the most amazing personality. But that's not how he wields his power. He wields it through sacrifice. He wields it through love. So ultimately, the question, right? This, this question, if God is all-powerful, is he, is he really loving? Does he really care about me? Look at the cross, right? There's your answer. Like, it, it all kind of boils down to that. Look at the bloody cross. To answer the question whether or not God loves you. Does he care about you? When we come to the cross, we come weak, confused, broken, perplexed, bruised, anxious, and frustrated. And there at the cross, in that place where the world sees weakness, is where we find the power of God. It's in the cross. If God were not all-powerful, Jesus would still be dead. But he's not. He's alive. And we are alive because of him. So here's how I want to close. I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 3. And I want us to close our eyes. Actually, you don't have to close your eyes because some of you might want to read. I just want us to really soak this in. All right? I want us to leave here. I want us to live this week with this in mind. Okay? Ephesians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And what he just asked is a lot. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. The power that created at a word the universe and the galaxies and all that is in them is the same power that is at work in you and I. According to the power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. We know this because we are alive. We know this because we are alive. And He continues to give us life. Let's pray.
Father, we love you. And we ask today, Lord, that you would help us to remember your strength and your power. But most importantly, Father, we ask that you would bring it to the forefront of our minds and rest it on the top of our hearts, Father, what that means. It means that you are a strong Father, that you hold us in your arms and that you will never let us go. That there is no lengths that you will not go to to save us. You have proven that. That your power means goodness. Your power means love for us. That we might rest in that. We ask these things in your name. Amen.